You're going to love this. Just love it. Hoping so. But no promises. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast. And 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, blanketing the globe on the Progressive Voices channel, streaming on the Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, the Detour in East Tennessee, and of course, Radio Sputnik five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have talked many times on this program about the roiling battle over the use of encryption technology and how the U.S. government has been pushing of late for private software companies to give them, and theoretically only them, a key to access the encrypted data you rely on on your computer and on your cell phone to do stuff like communicate with, uh, well, whoever it is you want to communicate with. And to securely use e-commerce, such as online banking, purchasing, and so forth. Well, that particular fight took a very big and public turn over the past 24 hours or so. And we will talk about that in a little bit on this program. But first, over the last few days as well, with the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia and all of the argle-bargle and jiggery-pokery, as, as Scalia might say, that has followed, uh, we, we have happily, uh, I should say, for the moment, lost track of the ongoing presidential election primaries, which you'll be shocked to learn we remain smack dab in the middle of. Did you know it? Did you know that, Desi Doyle? Did you know that was going on throughout all of this? I wish I could forget yes, about I it. Yes, I know. That for is even five minutes. That's uh, Desi Doyen, our producer. Um Though we may have some uh, Scalia-related news uh, a little bit later oh, this goody. hour, if we can get to it. Yeah. Well, you can't complain. You complain about the election coverage. You complain I about know, the Scalia I know. coverage. I don't really complain. But what yeah, you're the, doing uh, is complaining about America. It's my the twi- it's the 25-year permanent campaign that lasts forever and I never know. goes away. I know it does. And well, but now it's actually here. Now we're actually in the middle of voting. And uh, caucuses and primaries are now coming up in South Carolina and Nevada over the uh, just the next few days. Then Super Tuesday 
in more than a dozen states all at one time just about two weeks later. So we do need to catch up on a few related items from both the horse race itself. And as you know, we cover on this show much more uh, than probably anyone else. The track conditions on which those horses are running. All right, let's start with the horse race in that case. Poles. Yes, the polls continue. Uh, uh, I almost said Bill Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Bill's not in this yet, is he? No. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are once again, according to this national poll from Quinnipiac, in a dead heat nationwide. That goes against uh, many of the other polls out there that, that show Hillary with a substantive lead nationally, although it's getting smaller. But the Quinnipiac poll, a couple of weeks ago, we reported that they found uh, Hillary and Bernie in a dead heat. Didn't know at the time if it was an outlier or not. Still don't know if it's an outlier. But once again, Quinnipiac has another poll, a new poll out today showing that Hillary and Bernie are in a dead heat nationwide. <clears throat> Clinton uh, narrowly edges Sanders with 44 percent of, uh, of the, uh, support compared to Bernie Sanders, 42 percent. That is within Quinnipiac's uh, Quinnipiac University polls margin of error. Those results are largely unchanged from uh, the ones that came out earlier this month from Quinnipiac. Eleven percent of Democrats nationally remain undecided. But of course, in this country, in truth, national polls don't really matter. What matters are the state by state polls. And in this case, we now have another poll out of Nevada showing the same thing, that Clinton and Sanders are in a dead heat in Nevada. Now, I, I should caution everyone here that the polls in Nevada are very unreliable because there's just not many of them. And the reason there's not many of them is because the Nevada caucuses are really, really difficult to poll. Nonetheless, a CNN ORC is now saying that Clinton and Sanders are in a dead heat in Nevada with likely Democratic caucus, caucus goers there evenly split between the two ahead of this Saturday's caucuses. Yep, this Saturday, though Clinton holds an edge over Sanders on handling a range of top issues, according to CNN, the results suggest the extremely close race hinges on divided opinions on the economy. Overall, 48 percent of likely caucus attendees say they support Clinton. Forty seven percent support Sanders. Uh, right now, uh, the uh, Clinton is holding an edge among women in Nevada, while Sanders tops the former secretary of state among voters under 50, uh, under age 55. There is one exception, however. The pool of potential caucus goers in Nevada is more racially diverse than those who participated in Iowa or New Hampshire, the racial divide among likely caucus goers isn't nearly as stark as among voters in South Carolina, <clears throat> where uh, Hillary Clinton is said to be ahead of Sanders by double digits, uh, with both white and non-white voters about evenly divided between the two candidates in Nevada. So, I, you know, I don't again, I don't know what to make of those polls, but I just want to get it out there because I don't think that uh, we can know much from that Nevada polling since there's really so few polls. And in this case, we're talking about 
If you look at the bottom line here, 282 likely Democratic primary voters with a margin of error of plus or minus 6%. That's a really small sample size. Very small sample size, a single poll, a big margin of error. So who knows? They also go on to say that, uh, as was the case in Iowa, Sanders' support rests partly on those who are not regular participants in the caucus process. And that turnout will be uh, the key role in this thing on Saturday. In that regard, Clinton fares better among those who say they are definitely going to participate in the caucus, as well as among those who say that they have regularly participated in the caucus in the past, while newer voters are more likely to back Sanders as are those a bit less certain about whether they will show up to those caucuses on Saturday. And showing up to these caucuses is a lot more work than showing up to cast your vote. you got to be around much longer. It's a more complicated process. Uh, and up in Iowa, as we saw when uh, uh, voters had to go through that process, what we ended up with was essentially a dead heat, even though Bernie Sanders was thought to be ahead going into Iowa. So now they're in a dead heat going into Nevada, What that means, we don't know. We'll find out, uh, I guess, in a few days, hopefully, maybe. Now, uh, Clinton, as I mentioned, continues to lead Sanders by double digits in South Carolina, where voters are going to the 100% unverifiable polls for the Democratic uh, South Carolina primary one week from this Saturday. So it's uh, Nevada this Saturday, South Carolina the next Saturday for Democrats. There has been some tightening in those South Carolina polls, but she still has a big lead, about uh, 20 points, give or take, in most of those South Carolina polls. There is still time for that to change since the Democrats don't have to vote until next week. And that uh, the results coming out of Nevada could make a difference. But in the meantime, this Saturday, Republicans do go to the polls in South Carolina. That is on the same day as the Democrats are in Nevada. And right now, Trump, Donald Trump, you might have heard of him, he continues to blow away his nearest competitor by double digits in South Carolina. This uh, this poll out, for example, today, this morning from the uh, morning consult poll shows Donald Trump, man, 41 percent support in uh, in South Carolina. His next closest uh, competitor is Marco Rubio down at 14 percent. And that's with Trump coming down a few notches, by the way. Uh, Last week, he was up at 44% in that same poll with Marco Rubio at 10%. So Marco Rubio is slightly on the rise. Donald Trump Trump is slightly on the decline in that particular poll. Uh, And uh, that particular poll, by the way, for South Carolina also shows, I mentioned that tightening race on the Democratic side, uh, shows Hillary Clinton up only Eight points in that particular poll. Brand new poll just out today. So, as I said, tightening there, but not on the Republican side, at least not in South Carolina, at least not uh, notably, as Trump continues to blow away everyone in South Carolina and in national polls. At least at least he did until today, at least he did until today, moments before we went on air. I was kind of surprised to see this. Uh, I'm not sure yet what to make of it, uh, but this is the brand new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. It was just released and it shows (laughs) it shows Donald Trump for the first time not in the lead. 
Yes, I know. Uh, Republican presidential candidate Ted Cruz leads Donald Trump by just two points in this new national poll. Until now, Trump had held the uh, top spot in 31 consecutive national polls, according to Real Real Clear Politics, um, posting a double-digit lead in all but four of those polls, by the way. And last month in NBC's poll, the same poll, NBC Wall Street Journal, Trump held a 13-point lead over Cruz. Now it's Cruz over Trump by two points? Really? Color me skeptical. Uh, this may be an outlier as well, but it is the first. Uh, it, it, this is just brand new. It's fresh. It's just in. And uh, it is was taken completely after the, the entire sample was taken completely after that Saturday GOP debate, which we covered a couple days ago, which was absolutely insane. And which I had said, Desi Doyen, you can you'll remember this. And it's on the Twitters that this was the first debate. I thought that Donald Trump might have hurt himself. Yes, because it was interesting, though, to watch this raucous GOP debate on Saturday night and mm-hmm. how Trump brought up the Iraq war and said they lied. They lied yeah. about weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. And he was booed. And he blamed George W. Bush for 9-11. Yes. So is that what is going on here in this uh, Has he finally found the tripwire well, to make the Republican base not like him finally quite gone as too much? Far? Yeah, I don't know. I, I remain skeptical, however. I mean, we'll it is see. only one, as it, you say, one national poll. poll. It sounds like it's within the margin of error or at least very close to it that Cruz leads. So, you know. Oh, yeah, that, that tie. But the fact that he's lost uh, Trump has lost his lead that is kind of all new and so we'll see right now it's got see if uh, it holds yeah we will see if other polls show the same thing uh Ted Cruz has 28 percent support in this poll Trump is at 26 Marco Rubio follows with 17 percent in the poll uh and then uh, the worst news of all from this poll is for Jeb Bush who uh he's way behind he's in sixth nationally with just four four percent wow Kasich is in fourth place with 11 percent and then ben carson is close behind with 10 percent go figure uh that is uh, nationally but again i say it, it doesn't matter we run elections state by state so uh right now the next state for the republicans is south carolina and uh, no matter what happens on uh, in South Carolina for the Republicans on Saturday or the following Saturday for the Democrats in South Carolina, there will be nothing that anybody can do about those results. There will be no way to review those results. There are there are no paper ballots, at least uh, I'm not sure there might be some absentee voting. But for the most part, across the entire state, they use 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. There is no real way to review the results to determine if they actually reflect the will of the voters. Now, you'll recall, uh, we talked about it on this show when it happened at the time, uh, Alvin Green, back in 2010, he was named the winner of the state's Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate back in 2010. Even though the 32-year-old man did not campaign at all, he had no campaign website, he didn't have a job, he didn't own a cell phone, nobody had ever heard of this guy, and yet he was somehow announced the winner of the Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate back in 2010. He ended up beating a former circuit court judge, man by the name of Vic Rall, 
Uh, Rawl had decisively won the absentee uh, paper ballots across most of the state. But on primary day, when they use those 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, uh, Rawl lost. Lost to the guy that no one had ever heard about, at least according to the machines, if you believe them. At the time, uh, the the Democratic House Majority Whip back in 2010 was Congressman James Clyburn, Democrat from uh, uh, South Carolina. And he said that he believed that there was hacking done to those computers across the state. Uh, yes, a, a sitting elected uh, congressman uh, it said that he believed that the election was hacked on those machines. And, of course, we know that they can easily be hacked. Uh, Vic Rall challenged those results, which, according to the voting machine experts, good ones that he had consulted, uh, testified on his behalf during the challenge that the only reason the results could have been as they were giving this victory to this guy no one had ever heard of was due to, quote, a system, a, a systemic problem with the machines themselves. Nonetheless, even though he challenged the results, went to the Democratic Party who could have overturned those results. The results stood. The Democratic Party, it, its executive committee could have overturned it, but they feared, at least as Rawl told me at the time, that they would open up a whole can of worms by overturning this one race, by allowing another primary to be run. That would lead to the challenge of uh, to a challenge of all sorts of other election results that year. So they didn't overturn it. They let this guy go ahead and lose the, uh, the, the general election in the fall for U.S. Senate. But they are still using in South Carolina those exact same 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by a company named ESNS. Uh, which uh, these machines and this company has failed in election after election all across the country for well over a decade at this point. Uh, the ESNS iVotronic system is the name of this thing, and they are still in use, which is just amazing to me. Not just in South Carolina, by the way. They are still in use all over the country in this presidential election, incredibly enough, despite all the that we've reported about them over the years. Aside from being hackable and uh, simply failing to work properly, there are all kinds of other problems with these machines as well. A week or two ago, we told you on this program how Maryland was forced to move to paper ballots at the last minute for their upcoming primary elections in Baltimore because there are so many names on the ballot and they won't all fit on the touchscreen, but they can make them fit on the paper. So uh, that's the good news. They've moved to paper ballots, at least for this election, in, uh, at least in the, uh, in the city of Baltimore, because the touchscreens simply won't work. In, uh, in St. Louis, my old hometown, St. Louis and St. Louis County, will also be moving, at least for one upcoming election, to paper ballots. Why? Well, according to the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, uh, because of the unusually short gap between the March 15 presidential primary in St. Louis, in Missouri, and the April 5 local elections, St. Louis and St. Louis County will be able to offer only optical scan paper balloting for that second vote. Normally, both OpScan and touchscreen devices are available at polling places in both jurisdictions, but 
Officials with the uh, city and county election board say that the three weeks they have between the two elections will not be enough time to reprogram all of the touchscreen systems. Well, I'm so glad they spent those millions of dollars on those voting machines that they can't use. Totally (laughs) worth it. They can't use them because it takes so long. So instead, they will use paper ballots. That's good. Unfortunately, they're going to run them through computer optical scan systems, but at least we will have paper ballots. We can go, if anybody can get access to them, uh, we can try at least to look at the paper ballots if there's any question about voter intent. Uh, Meanwhile, that's Missouri. Who cares about Missouri, right? They've gone red for so many years. They've gone Republicans. Used to be a swing state when I lived there. I'm just saying, after I left, gone completely Republican. I blame myself. Meanwhile... In Ohio, which is still a swing state, early voting uh, started there as well, started today in the great state of Ohio. However, voting machines in Miami County, Ohio, have, quote, a myriad of problems. They are near the end of their life, and there are no guarantees that issues with them won't occur during the March primary election, according to a county employee who has worked for years with this equipment. Concerns about the voting machines in Miami County, Ohio, come almost uh, two months after the elections office voter registration system also started developing problems just before Christmas. Man, Phil Mote who tests the machines uh, for the county election board, told the board last week that some machines were found in recent testing to jump to another candidate when a tester touched the screen. Sound familiar? Any voting machine uh, with that problem, he says, was taken out of use uh, before the uh, early voting started today. A Miami County Board of Elections worker raised concerns about the condition of the county's voting machines, but expressed confidence that there will be no problem during the March 15 primary. What could possibly go wrong? Not in Ohio. Uh, Moat said that he thinks the problems being experienced are from the machine's advancing age, which we have talked about on this show, all of these old computers which they've given a lifespan of about 10 years and then didn't consider, well, what do we do after that? The only reason they have these uh, stupid, horrible voting systems, computerized voting systems in the first place is because of uh, the U.S. Congress put a whole bunch of money out after the 2000 election and said, well, the way to cure what happened in 2000 when Antonin Scalia stopped people from being able to count the ballots in the state of Florida, which were completely countable, the only thing, uh, you know, after that, they say, well, let's just go all electronic. Has nothing to do with the problem we had in Florida, but that'll be the solution. We'll put $4 billion into what's called the Federal Help America Vote Act. Well, Miami County, Ohio's more than 350 D-bold touchscreen machines were bought back in 2005 uh, for about a million dollars in Federal uh, Help America Vote Act money, HAVA grants. The purchase ended the county's use of an optical scan system that was in use in 2001. They had optical scan in Ohio at this uh, uh, in this county, Miami County, and they got rid of them. They went to worse machines following the 2000 election that are now too old. That are are now don't work and they got to get rid of. What are they running? You know, Windows XP or something? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Or or worse. (laughs) Yeah. That's what they run. Older than that. 
So uh, <laughs> that's what they're stuck, stuck with. And there is no new money to buy new machines, and they wouldn't have time anyway before the presidential election comes up. Primary voting has already uh, has already begun, and uh, this is what's going to happen all across the country. We will continue to cover it. One more point before we get to our break here. State law enforcement officials down in Florida. Yes. They served a search warrant on Monday morning in the investigation of two men accused of hacking the Lee County, Florida, Supervisor of Elections website. There was an attempted hacking of the website. This is an ongoing investigation, said Vicki Collins, spokeswoman for the Lee County Supervisor of Elections. The info they accessed was on an old server. No useful information on it, she says. Nobody is compromised. Well, guess who it is that they are investigating? Dan Sinclair is one of them. He is running for the election supervisor position in Lee County. He's running against the incumbent supervisor of elections, Sharon Harrington. Sinclair appeared in a video of the hacking that was posted on YouTube with David Levin, a CEO of Vanguard Cybersecurity, walking through exactly how Levin was able to hack into the Lee County elections website. So they didn't take anything. They didn't do any damage that we know of. They released the information and they said, hey, we got a problem at the election officials office, you know, where they count votes on computer voting systems. They can be easily hacked. And then they went and uh, served a subpoena on these people and took away their computers, went and raided their houses. It's so amazing. they proved it could yeah. be done, and they posted a video proving it can be done? Right. Well, they didn't uh, change election results. Here's what they did. Here's a, here's a quick explanation from that video. Uh, uh, Dan David Levin, CEO of Vanguard Cybersecurity, speaking with Dan Sinclair, a candidate for supervisor of elections in Lee County, Florida. You can be in Siberia and still perform the attack that I performed on the local supervisor election website. So this is very important. You don't need to be in the building. You don't need to live here in Lee County. You can be halfway around the world and still perform what's called an SQL injection attack. You're using a search query language um, and you're using that to trick the system into giving you information that might not otherwise be accessible to the public. And basically what they found, and you'll see the video here in a second, is that he found the tables, the databases, um, he was able to spoof them into getting in and getting the information. And the big, biggest problem we have, and I used to design databases, when you design a database, you always have a separate database for your passwords and your user IDs, and those are encrypted. And Dave found that they were just a table in this database, none of which was encrypted. It's basic database design and is extremely flawed. I mean, they should have been protected. Should have been protected, wasn't protected. Now, I, you know, I'm not surprised. Uh, the, uh, the CIA, the White House, the Department of Justice, they too have not been able to protect their own website. So how we expect, a, a, you know, an election official in a, in a Florida county to be able to protect against the uh, attack? You know, we can't. We really can't. Uh, but we also can't protect against an attack on election results that these very same counties run on their own computers. Now, the spokesman from the Lee County Supervisor of Elections office said this office did not invite them into the website. Well, of course not. Sinclair, who is running uh, to challenge the incumbent supervisor there, said he was the one who told the office that they had security issues in the first place and uh, had uh, Levin 
This cybersecurity guy walked them through how he got in. Sinclair said they wouldn't have this information if we didn't give it to them. Sinclair said that Levin was able to get as far as a link to a table of social security numbers for a state voter database. And then he stopped. Levin backed out as soon as he had realized how far he had gotten into the system. So uh, that's what's going on in Florida. Uh, Don't be alarmed. (laughs) Nothing to worry about. So it's it's just amazing. Uh, but so while the government can't even keep its own websites or your election results secure, at the same time, they would like to make sure that you can't keep your own personal data on your cell phone or on your computer secure either. Bad enough they can't do it. They want to make sure you can't do it either. And that story is next. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you. Uh, just before Christmas last year, two extremist gunmen killed 14 people during a holiday party in San Bernardino, California, out here. Uh, the terrorist, Syed Rizwan Farouk, and his wife, Tashfin Malik, were tracked down and killed by law enforcement officials a few hours after the massacre. Though it's believed that the shooting was a so-called lone wolf attack of jihadists sympathetic to ISIS, incredibly enough, as of last week, it was publicly reported that federal law enforcement officials, now almost two months later, had still been unable to unlock the iPhone of Farouk. This week, law enforcement officials received an order from a federal judge directing Apple to help officials break into Farouk's iPhone. And today, Apple has said that they will challenge that ruling with the company's CEO, Tim Cook, releasing a statement saying that they would refuse to comply with what he described as an unprecedented step 
by the federal government. He said, we oppose this order, which has implications far beyond the legal case at hand. Well, this entire uh, affair has now seemingly turned into a fight over the use of encryption and uh, the, the need, as you will hear it from federal officials, Republicans and Democrats alike, many of them, the need for a backdoor key that can access these telephones, computers, and other encrypted information that is otherwise held privately by, well, all Americans, everyone in the world for that matter. And uh, the question has been brought up. We've talked about it on this show. If you give a key like that to open up the encryption, well, then, if there is such a key available, anyone could potentially get access to the key. And there goes everything we know about online uh, uh, commerce and everything else, not to mention personal privacy. But is this what this fight is really about? Trying to figure out what's going on, because I thought this was about a lock screen. Now it's about encryption. So here to help us make sense of this is uh, Corinne McSherry. She's the legal director at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where they specialize in uh, intellectual property, open access, free speech issues. And uh, EFF has, in fact, now come out in favor of Apple's position on this, fighting the federal government. Uh, Corinne, welcome to the broadcast. Well, thank you. I'm happy to, happy to be on. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, so I, I must admit, I have not been following the story as closely as I, was, as I would like. There has been so much news over the past several days, so I'm going to rely on you to help, yeah. uh, help me clear this up a little bit. Uh, this federal order, uh, my impression was it had to do with simply unlocking the iPhone in the first place, as opposed to this larger battle about encryption and and all that comes with that so can you let me know what is the actual uh legal uh matter at issue here sure so what the what the court has ordered apple to do is actually quite extraordinary so apple has built a device i mean like many companies Mm -hmm. apple has built a device with um pretty good encryption on it Mm -hmm. um the kind of encryption that we all really want on our devices to protect us protect our data protect our information protect our security um they've made a, a very very secure device and um made it available to users you know around the world of course mm-hmm. what this order does is it actually requires apple to write a whole nother layer of code to break the encryption on the device so it's not like Apple already, at least according to its own statements, it's right. not like Apple already has this code you know, in place and it just needs to turn a switch or something. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay. Instead, what, it, what the court has said is, no, Apple, we're going to require you to write some code and apply it to this device. We're going to require you to build a back door into this iPhone. And Apple's concern about this, which I think is, you know, obviously we support and, and agree with, is that, um, you know, once they create this backdoor, you know, there's sort of this notion that you can just have a golden key and only good guys will use it. Right. That's not how it works in practice. Uh, you know, if you ask any security professional and they mm-hmm. will tell you, once you build it, <laughs> it will be used for nefarious purposes. I, I- as well as laudable purposes. And, and I want to get into some of those uh, details, but I'm still trying to figure out, are we talking about encryption or are we talking about the lock screen? Uh, you know, on an iPhone, you, you can punch in a four-digit number or a five-digit number or use your thumbprint or whatever to open it up. 
what are we actually talking about? What does the what what does the judge's orders refer to? Judge's order refer to, and uh, what is it that law enforcement is currently unable to do? Because as I understand it, uh, even if they get into this phone somehow with or without the help of Apple, then you still have to deal with encrypted information. I I I guess that is on the phone. Uh, it, help me understand the math here, uh, Corinne. Right. Well, it will be it will be both. It will be both of these things. So it's not just the sort of the lock screen, but okay. it's also what the what the Apple's required to do. And according to the order, is Apple will assist the FBI in bypassing or disabling the auto erase function in on the phone. Right. This is the encryption on the phone. And that's the auto erase um, function. If, if you try more than ten times to access the phone, then the data on the the phone will automatically delete that's a setting we don't know if he had yep. that setting on but it is a setting that's available uh, on the iphone essentially what it's do what, what the court order essentially does is uh-huh. require apple to go and work for the fbi for a while okay <laughs> that's what whatever it takes um if you read the order it's sort of like there's a whole series of steps that apple shall be required to do in order to in order to enable the fbi to access all the data on this phone okay that's what the court wants them to do, and so as a practical matter, what that's going to mean, according to Apple, is essentially they're going to need to have they're going to have to write a bunch of software mm-hmm. um, that doesn't currently exist and um, provide it to the FBI. And I don't know about you, but I do not have a tremendous amount of trust <laughs> in the government's ability to you know make sure that that backdoor that Apple builds for them is kept secure. We know that, you know, government Mm -hmm. databases are hacked all the time. And, you know, and again, it's sort of this notion that we'll just build this one time for the FBI for one phone, but we know that that's not how it's going to work. And that's why this is so important, because what I think Apple understands, and I think what everybody needs to understand, is what the government is trying to do here is set a precedent. And if it wins this time, it's going to keep coming back over and over and over again. That's, you know, that's really what's at stake here. It's not just this one phone, but rather it's, you know, are we going to create a world in which the FBI can bypass the encryption on devices, you know, whenever it can get a mm-hmm. court order. Is that the world we're going to move towards? Because that's not the world we live in now. And and, and you talk about uh, the notion of, of keeping something a secret, the government keeping something a secret, if if they were given this uh, this golden key by Apple. And there's, by the way, a question, mm-hmm. as I understand it, of whether Apple can even uh, develop this uh, uh, such a key to get into this phone in the first place. But, okay, so the the government, they say, oh, yes, trust us, trust us. We Nobody can possibly get it. Never mind that all of our websites have been hacked uh, from, you know, the CIA to the Department of Justice uh, to the U.S. military to the White House on down. Never mind that. We finally learned how to keep this key a secret. Uh, isn't there even a larger concern that, well, other countries, China, Russia, Iran, these, uh, you know, these countries that are considered to be adversaries by the U.S. could say the same thing to Apple, that we need this information as well, or you can't sell your iPhones in China or Russia or Iran or, or beyond. I mean, what right do we in the U.S. as the U.S. government have that any other country in the world couldn't similarly apply to Apple? Well, they could certainly try to do exactly that because I think because and this gets back to the I think that the question that you were posing for me earlier, which mm-hmm. is exactly what was going to happen. So right now, so there's this lock on the on the screen, right? Right. And 
Uh, if if you try, a, everyone, if you have an iPhone, you know, if you try a certain number of times to unlock the screen, mm-hmm. um, eventually, you know, basically they, they've built in a system whereby you can't sort of what we call brute force it. So you can only try a certain number of times and then the, and then the phone just locks right. permanently, right? So that's what the problem that the government is facing. Deletes. It, it um, actually deletes, as I understand. The data, it gets, right. wipes itself out. That's right. So what, what the court is requiring Apple to do is basically build a new software to disable that function, and then the federal government can do those sort of brute force attacks, which means they basically will just keep trying different codes mm-hmm. 10 million times. You know, they, they, right. you can use the computer to do this, and it's relatively quick. Well, that's, that's the kind of key, that once you have it, once it, once it exists, mm-hmm. everybody's going to want it. Right, and it's going to set a precedent. And and I think you're quite right. Other companies around the world, other countries around the world, will try to impose similar orders mm-hmm. anywhere where Apple, you know, is potentially subject to jurisdiction. And right. what that means is it puts all the rest of us at risk. Right, everyone who relies on the encryption on their phones to protect mm-hmm. their data. And it's not just Apple, though. Is the thing. I think that you know, the, Apple's taking a stand right now with respect to this particular kind of encryption, but it's not going to stop here. If the government succeeds, then any time there's encryption and the government thinks it can make an argument for why it should have access to that data, it's going to try to make that argument. And it's going to rely on any precedent set in this case to support it. And and to be clear, we're not just talking about uh, you know data, uh, people sending email back and forth, although that is obviously a part of it, but we're talking about online commerce and everything else that relies on this encryption that the U.S. government is now saying, uh, uh, yeah, you, you know, make it available so that we can bust that very same encryption that you rely on for, for your online banking, your online uh, uh, you know purchases, and so forth. But mm-hmm. uh, the other side of this equation... Uh, you know, we don't know, I suppose, who it is that these uh, these shooters in San Bernardino were were communicating with, and uh, presumably uh, they're they're now dead, and presumably uh, there is not an imminent attack that they were aware of. But w- what of a situation? You know, we heard this in the in during the torture debate. You know, it was the old Jack Bauer scenario. What if uh, mm-hmm. he knows that there's a, a nuclear bomb that's going to go off somewhere? Yeah. Can do we have the right to? to torture him to get that information. Well, now we're not even talking about torture. We're not talking about putting someone's life in danger like that. We're talking about an iPhone. I mean, shouldn't the the argument will be made, of course, that if there is information on this guy's phone or any other uh, criminal terrorist's uh, uh, phone that might help us stop a nuclear attack, then we should do it. How do you respond to that, uh, uh, Corinne McSherry? Well, I think, first of all, I think that's a huge amount of speculation about it. I don't actually think the government's made a very strong case for why they need this information. Mm-hmm. I mean, these particular people, I mean, obviously what happened to San Bernardino was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but these shooters, they're dead. They're gone, right? And, and old-fashioned police work has garnered a whole lot of information about these folks. But there isn't any particular reason that, that I've seen in any sort of published reports to suggest that they had any relationships with anybody else, that, that unlocking this phone is going to get the, the government um, any information, and certainly no information that's related to an, an, an imminent threat. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just, you know, that's all speculation, and we should really set it aside. And um, I also think it's really crucial to keep in mind like what we're talking about here, because it's not just these people in this one phone. 
and we're not, this is, I mean, I think that the government, you know, chose this because they knew that, you know, the idea of the San Bernardino shootings would be very upsetting for people and people would, you know, sort of think, oh, well, that it must be justified because it's connected to that. Mm -hmm. But in a practical matter, you know, they are, they actually haven't made a particularly good case in their briefing for why they need this, any information that might be on the phone, other than they just want it. And again, I don't think they chose this particular phone accidentally. I think that they chose this to be the case because they're hoping that people will be distracted from the very real thing that's happening here, which is this is the first time that a company will be required required to build code in in order to assist law enforcement to build a backdoor. That's really the precedent that I think the government is after here. Um, it's not really about just this phone. It's about, you know, the next phone and the next phone and the right. next phone. Well, and, and, and right. And that's why I was trying to get at that that uh, original issue, because I'm not so sure that if all the government wanted was help in unlocking this particular phone, you know, the lock screen or something, uh, or or even, you know, turning off that, uh, that, that uh, system that will delete all the data if there's, you know, 10 tries or whatever to get into the right. phone. Uh, if it was only about that, I could see that Apple might be willing to help in this case for this phone uh, or something like that. But it seems like it has been made much, much broader to go to the idea of, encryption overall and the use of encrypted software which as as you note Corinne is a much much bigger issue so yeah I I do and I'm interested to hear that that you believe as well as you said that this particular case was brought out they're making a lot of noise with this case because obviously it is such a sensitive one uh, you know with with the the death of 14 people and and so many people who are aware of what happened in San Bernardino so do you feel that they are conflating these two sort of separate issues accessing one iPhone with this much larger picture about encryption um Absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, I, I can't get a window into the FBI's head, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I do think right. that, you know, this is a little bit too perfect. And I think, you know, because, and I think it is very easy for people to think, oh, wait a minute, um, maybe this is a Jack Bauer kind of situation. But mm-hmm. even that doesn't really make sense. There isn't an imminent threat right now. No mm-hmm. one's arguing that there's an imminent threat. Threat right. at all. They don't have that claim. All they're saying is, well, we, we, we want more information. We might be able to get more information mm-hmm. this way. Therefore, Apple, you basically need to come and work for us for a while. Uh, I, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And, and, and I just think that is what is, is really um, dangerous because, mm-hmm. again, you know, I, I mean, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a security professional, mm-hmm. but I know lots of security professionals, right. and what they tell me is, if you build this, you know, they will come. <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's not going to stop here. You're right. It won't stop here. And that's the concern. Now, I've heard, uh, uh, finally, I've heard uh, the, uh, from both Democrats and Republicans alike uh, claiming that this is a problem that needs to be fixed, this idea of encryption, that they regard it as a problem. And now, as you know, Democrats and Republicans these days don't agree on much. Uh, yeah. So is there uh, any actual fix that could be put forward that you know about that would not potentially violate the larger security concerns you're referring to, uh, both you know personal privacy and consumer security, uh, which is the reason for encryption in the first place? Is there a way out of this mess, a way forward that uh, EFF is uh, recommending or supporting at this point? So, 
I would first of all, I would just like to say I, encryption is not a problem. Encryption is a solution. Okay. <laughs> encryption is is you know is is really crucial, and we, mm. we even have sort of Supreme Court opinions. And, you know, court opinions up and down the line that have recognized that your phone contains intensely personal information, Mm -hmm. a lot of it. And that is deserving of protection. It's deserving of legal protection, and it's also deserving of technical protections. So, you know, fundamentally, I do not, I think we have to not even think of encryption as the problem at all. Encryption is a solution much more than it's a problem. So just don't mean to fight the hypo, but that's yeah. what lawyers do. Good, good. <laughs> no, I appreciate secondly, that. Secondly, I think that, I, you know, I think there's a lot that the government can do to investigate, you know, things that are going on. You know, there's lots of just old-fashioned police work that the government can engage in and does engage in all the time. Um, so we don't that's really the way forward mm-hmm. is the government should you know just proceed to do what it's always done which is you know investigate crimes it's just this particular avenue is not available to them and that's not that unprecedented there's a number of things that governments would like to do mm-hmm. in the name of investigating crimes and over and over you know we've set limits on what they can do when we say we decide that you know the balance is not appropriate you know people the government would like to, you know, walk into anybody's house if they needed to, <laughs> and uh, you know, if, in, in, if they, you know, felt that they needed to in order to investigate a crime. And we've said, no, that's not okay. You have, can only do it under certain certain circumstances, and maybe not at all under other circumstances. But these are not even. So we've so- always set limits on the government's ability to investigate. They don't have just a free hand. This is just one of them. Well, it, it is. Although, you know, when it comes to uh, the house, uh, going to somebody's house, you can go to court, you can get an order, and then you can go into the house. We're looking at a situation here where there is no potential solution as far as encryption goes. There is no way to de- decrypt it in the case these guys, uh, you know, the, these shooters have been killed. Uh, but you're suggesting, well, the workaround is, oh, too bad. Find other ways to do your police work that the uh, that the, the, the personal privacy and the consumer security uh, should trump that as uh, that's right as that's gotcha. right you have to look at the balance of harms mm-hmm. you know I think that's that's what that's what we have here and I think that the government has chosen this case because it's hoping to distract everyone from that balance but I think that you know, it's part of our job as the public to refuse to do that to really say like well wait a minute encryption does an tremendous amount of good in the world for millions of people that's important too and i think in this case it's more important than the fbi's ability to investigate a two-month-old case and open the phone of someone who is long dead and there's no evidence that they have ties to anybody other than sort of their own claims corinne mcsherry legal director at the electronic frontier foundation uh, get more information on the important work and i mean really important work that eff does over at eff.org uh, corinne really appreciate your uh, your joining us here at the last minute uh and, and for all the work that you guys do thank you so much thank you take care you bet all right a quick break and we are back with more bradcast right after this i'm brad friedman don't go away <laughs> Listeners, uh, Fred has just sent me a uh, cartoon depicting Justice Antonin Scalia at the pearly gates speaking to uh, St. Peter. Is that who it is? It would Desi be St. Peter, uh, yes. Yeah, St. Yes. Peter. 
saying to Scalia, sorry, Justice Scalia, but because of your rulings, I'll need to see your driver's license, a state-issued photo, and a military <laughs> ID. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you. Our last few minutes here. Uh, speaking of Scalia, turns out, according to Washington Post, when he died over the weekend in, uh, in uh, western Texas, he was on a hunting trip that was a gift from a, quote, friend who had business before the Supreme Court last year. Really? Yes, of course. Of a course. Gift. Yes. Justice Anton Scalia was taking a free vacation at the exclusive Chibolo Creek Ranch in western Texas when he was found dead inside a guest room on Saturday. According to the Washington Post, the trip was a gift from the ranch's owner, who just last year obtained a favorable result from the Supreme Court. The 30,000-acre hunting ranch, located around uh, about 30 miles from the Mexican border in the West Texas town of Shafter. That's your, that's your state, Des. Do you know Shafter? I do not. Right. It's also the home of uh, the owner of the ranch, John B. Poindexter, who owns the Houston-based manufacturing firm J.B. Poindexter & Company, the two men already had a tenuous connection outside of the ranch. Last year, an age discrimination suit filed against the Mike Group, which is a subsidiary of J.B. Poindexter and Company, reached the Supreme Court, which declined to hear the case. So, I, presumably... Uh, Scalia did this guy a favor, at least by uh, declining to hear this age discrimination suit against him. In an email, however, to the Washington Post, Poindexter said Scalia, who was invited to the ranch as a personal guest, was not charged for his stay, which cost hundreds of dollars a, a hundreds day. Hundreds of thousands, I would think. Well, no, totally. well, I mean, no, but to stay there, uh, the, oh, the, the rate, yeah, uh, cost hundreds of dollars. A lot of movie stars and so forth go there. A person familiar with the ranch's operation tells the Washington Post that Poindexter typically hosts these free events two or three times a year. So Scalia could have been there for all we know in the past. Scalia didn't care about recusing himself. Remember the big to-do about whether he should uh, recuse himself from a case having to do with Dick Cheney back during the Bush years, despite the fact that Scalia and Cheney used to go duck hunting together? He said, no, I don't need to recuse myself. I can I can uh, oversee this case that has to do with my good uh, hunting buddy Dick Cheney. There's there's no conflict there at all. And I do believe that eventually he ruled in favor of his friend Dick Cheney in that particular case, if memory serves. But but just because the the rule of law, the facts, the Constitution, not because he was doing any favors for his good friend, duck hunting partner Dick Cheney. So uh, same thing may have uh, gone on here. Poindexter says, at least claims, he did not pay for the justice's trip to, uh, to the uh, Chipolo Creek Ranch. He didn't pay for the airfare. Um, he was an invited guest along with a friend just like 35 others. Poindexter added the justice was treated no differently by me as no one was charged for the activities, the room and board, beverages, etc. That is a 22-year policy that applies to guys like 
Antonin Scalia, but not you or me. Who knows who these other 35 people are, by the way, who were there? We don't know. Poindexter explicitly denied paying for Scalia's charter flight. He flew down there on a private plane. Uh, and uh, he declined to identify the friend who accompanied Scalia or any other guests on that trip. But there you go. No worries. No conflict of interest there. Uh, do we have time for a yes. quick uh, quick email, a uh, quick uh, reader email? You can, by the way, send me email anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Betsy from Texas writes to say, Hi, Brad. Listen to today's broadcast. Heard you say that the Congress is broken. It's not the Congress, she says, not even the Senate. The Republican Party is broken. The Democratic side of Congress may not always meet my liberal standards, she says, but it is not broken. As uh, Drift Glass, who is a, a, a blogger and a, and a podcaster, uh, says, both sides don't. Thanks. This is true. And keep up the muckraking, says Betsy. And of course, she is absolutely right. I probably I don't even I'm not even sure the moment she's referring to here. But uh, she's right. Both sides are not equally uh, culpable here. But the fact is, Congress is broken. Yes, Republicans broke it. There is no question about it. Republicans broke it. And we've been hearing a lot since the death of Scalia about how, well, you know, the, yes, the Republicans are challenging uh, uh, Obama's ability to uh, to appoint a new uh, justice. Well, it serves them right because the Democrats, you know, gave George W. Bush a hard time with his appointed judges. They never, ever, ever did anything like what the Republicans are doing here, or at least what the Republicans are talking about doing here, not even holding hearings on a nominee uh, that has not even been made yet. It is not even close. So if you got the idea that I was comparing Republicans uh, and Democrats there and saying they both did it, that they both both broke Congress, I absolutely was not saying that or at least did not mean to say that. Uh, so Betsy is right. Absolutely. The Republican Party well, actually, maybe I should challenge Betsy. I don't know if the Republican Party is broken. I think this is uh, actually exactly how the Republican Party uh, likes it at this point, clearly because they keep going farther and farther over this same edge. They are choosing to do this, and uh, they continue to go. But as far as Congress goes, yes, she's absolutely right. Re the Republicans broke Congress, and uh, any suggestion that both sides do it is absolutely uh, lazy and stupid. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, Corinne McSherry at Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. And thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to keep us doing all that we do here. Much appreciated. You can find us and follow us on the Twitters at TheBradBlog. And you can download any portion of our program at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.